morning. Our scripture reading today starts with the 23rd Psalm, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And now from the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, verses 25 through 27. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This summer we're studying Paul's little letter to the church at Colossae. And we have already begun to study chapter three, but I want to return to it one more time uh, in order to take up what was simply a final point uh, last week to which I very quickly alluded. Now, uh, those of you who studied this book or just devotionally read it over the years know that you could spend uh, many years unpacking the riches of uh, this letter Paul is writing to a church that apparently he himself had not visited. It was a church that we believe was planted because of things said here, uh, planted by a man named Epaphras. Uh, he has visited Paul who is in jail. In fact, at this point, he may already have been a prisoner with Paul. We know from a later letter that uh, he'd spent time with Paul in prison. Uh, at this point, he'd made a report to Paul about this church. And so Paul is writing because he's deeply concerned. He's concerned because he's been told that teachers have come in who have not denied the gospel or specifically reduced it, but they've added to it. And they've added, as we've seen, particularly in three ways, and we don't need to recap those, but the idea was that yes, uh, Jesus is the Messiah and he died and he rose and all that's fine, but you need to do these following things in order to be the real deal. And we saw in studying those three things that they touch on every group within evangelical churches. It's a challenge to the reformed churches when they said there are additional things that you need to know in order to be the real thing. It's a challenge 
to your more pietistic churches when they said that there are additional things that you need to do, legalistic things, in order to be the real thing. And it's a challenge to charismatic evangelicals when they said there are visions, there are uh, ecstatic experiences that you need to have to be the real thing. And Paul is writing this letter to continue to come back to point to Jesus and say he is supreme and therefore he is fully sufficient. And we've seen how marvelously he did that with regard to supremacy in the cosmos, his supremacy in the new creation, the church, and his supremacy in each of our lives. Then we came to this majestic third chapter and I think that this along with Romans 8 is one of Paul's most majestic summaries of the gospel that saves us and how it should begin to transform the way that we think and the way that we live. And uh, we, when we opened this up initially, I invited you to look at it through four moves that Paul makes. In the opening four verses, he tells us that there is a truth that must be embraced and it has at its heart the great doctrine, which is the only all-encompassing description of our salvation, and that is union with Christ. Everything else flows from that, whether we're talking about being born again or being forgiven, justified, being sanctified, looking forward to glorification. All of those are simply aspects of our union with Christ. And Paul says, as he opens this letter, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he begins in verse five to tell us how we begin to live out what God has already declared us to be. I studied New Testament uh, under Gordon Fee, and Gordon Fee often used to say to us, what Jesus is always telling us, what Paul is always telling us is be what you are. Stop being what you used to be. You've been made new. Religion tells us do this and then God will love you. Be this, become this, and then God will accept you and embrace you. The gospel says for those of us who are exhausted with religion, sick of it, I remember an old friend of mine, a pastor down in Chattanooga, who used to say, religion is for people who are afraid of hell. The gospel is for those of us who've been there. And it, religion just puts you there, it wears you out. It, it sets you an impossible task. And so Paul says, no, Christ has done this for you. This is now who you are. So now, this is what I want you to do. And beginning with verse 5, he says, start throwing off the old behaviors that marked the person you used to be. And he touches on the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life. And then beginning in verse 12, he says, put on the life of Christ. And he summarizes it by saying, above all these things, put on love which binds all these things together. And so now we come to these final verses of this section, verses 15, 16, and 17. And I'm actually going to read them. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, the word of the Lord. These three calls that the apostle makes to us are a terrific place to start every day. One of our good listeners in this congregation on Monday morning emailed me or texted me and said, I just want to be clear, what did you say it means that we're to set our minds on heavenly things, not on earth? Which is a great question, and if we balk at that, we'll lapse back into religion. And what I had said was, it is not a call to sit around and try to imagine what heaven is like. It's not to sit around and try to think what those we love who've gone before us must be experiencing now as they await what is our great destiny, the new heavens and the new earth, the recreation of the cosmos and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Those are wonderful things to contemplate, that new city that's coming and, and what will it be like, but that's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? He's talking about what he summarizes in this last call that we'll look at it in a minute. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we'll get to that finally and say this is it. It involves throwing off the old, putting on the new. It supremely involves no longer simply loving ourselves, but loving others. And so he starts with, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts and your minds. Now, remember always, that the authors of the New Testament, we're not sure about the author of Hebrews, but um, we know that the rest of them were, were Jews. And so they didn't have the New Testament. It was, they were writing it. Uh, it was a series of letters being written and gospels being composed. When they talked about the Bible, they were talking about what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And of course, in worship, they would worship in the Hebrew language and speak, we think, an Aramaic form of Semitic language. But the, the language of the street throughout the Roman Empire was not Latin, but Greek, Koine Greek, common Greek, and the New Testament is written in that. So Paul is writing in Greek, but he's thinking as a Jew. And so when he says, when the, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and minds, he uses the Greek word erene, which means to bind together, to bring things together. But he's thinking shalom, which is that all-encompassing blessing with which Israelis, even today, those of us that are going to Israel, you're going to hear it there because people greet each other by saying shalom 
and when they take leave of each other, they say shalom. It is the all-encompassing word of wishing someone to be right with God, right with each other, and right with themselves. It is wanting you to be blessed and at peace in the midst of a world that so often is at war. And he is telling us that this is what should rule our minds. Another interesting word here, and you know, you can read this stuff, don't think I'm some Greek scholar. Um, this, you know, any of you that read commentaries can get this good stuff. But um, the word that's used here for rule is actually translated in a lot of translations literally as umpire. Let the peace of Christ umpire your hearts and minds. Uh, you, you will know that the ancient Greeks were about as sports crazy as the United States. And they're the ones that gave us the Olympics and they loved sports. They had all these different events in their, in their cities and it filled the empire. And in these sports, the person who presided was the umpire. And the umpire named the game, enforced the rules, and awarded the prize at the end of the contest. That's the word he uses. This is the only time that Paul uses it. So he is using it intentionally. Usually if he's speaking of ruling, he uses other words that are political words. So he's intentionally telling us that what he wants the peace of Christ to do for us in the midst of all the conflicting thoughts and feelings and emotions is always to come back to the peace of Christ and let that determine. It's, it flows right from the previous verse where he said, and above all these put on love, which binds everything together. Let the peace of Christ umpire your heart and mind. Now let me tell you, I may need this more than anybody else in this room. I've got some things right now in my life that are just pressing on me every day and making me a little crazy. And I have moments when I want to go down to Knoxville and with a baseball bat. Uh, I, I'm just being honest. That's too much information, I'm sure. Sorry, kids. Wouldn't do it, wouldn't be prudent. But, um, I, I, you know, so I'm lying in bed last night, just churning, thinking about this situation and thinking, boy, I'm going to be down there next week. This is, boy, I'm going to go over there. And, and I'm thinking, and in the morning, I'm standing up and preaching on let the peace of Christ rule in your... And I just, Lord, forgive me. What, how can I, you know, I've been doing this. I'm 75 years old. I've been doing this 45 years. But I'm, I mean, we're all in the battle. I've been declared righteous in Christ. Thank God that's my only hope. But the Lord expects a little more effort of me. Not to just lapse back into that. I, I don't think I told you this. If I did, sorry for repeating it. But I, I didn't realize how... I thought I did a better job hiding this. Uh, one of our guys on staff, after he'd worked with us a year, came to me and he said, I figured out the difference between the two of us. 
said, really? He said, yeah. I said, when somebody sends me an ugly email, I want to go home, get a gun, and shoot myself. When someone sends you an ugly email, <laughs> you want to go home, get a gun, and shoot them. Um, so I'm, I'm just admitting to you, I desperately need to hear this. And when the peace of Christ, when this tremendous shalom umpires my heart and mind, life is so much sweeter. Just the experience of the reality of putting that stuff away, it, it's going back to this shalom is going back to his opening lines in chapter 3 when he says, if you have been raised with Christ, <laughs> if, have you been raised with Christ, John? Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what does that look like? Well, he's wanting me to think about people whom I may be in conflict with and say, Lord, I want you to bless them and keep them and make your face shine on them. I refuse to hate them and want bad things for them. I will love them by desiring their good in Jesus' name. Show me how to deal with this situation in a way that brings honor and glory to your name and brings good to this person and draws them instead of me getting, you know, oh, no, don't go there, Jeff. Instead of me getting a different kind of satisfaction, but one that does not last and does not honor and glorify God and does not help them. It doesn't even help me. Okay, that's more than you ever wanted to know about me. Um, but I'm just telling you, I'm, I'm preaching to myself whenever I'm preaching. And if you see me particularly passionate sometimes in preaching, it's because I'm seeing things in my own heart that I'm dealing with and I need to bring it, bring it on in. Okay, let the peace of Christ umpire your thoughts, your mind, your heart, your feeling. How do I do that? How do I know what God wants of people? Oh, his second, that, that's verse 15, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. And even, it even changes the way we sing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. That's what we've been doing this morning, lifting up our voices to the Lord, but, but to each other, encouraging one another in these songs of praise. And he wants us to be filled with the word of God. Now, we have such an advantage over the people then. Well, an advantage in one level, and in another sense it isn't. We live this side of the printing press, and now even more so with our little handheld computer. We have constant access to God's word. The people back then didn't, most people had no scripture. They, you would have had to be a wealthy person to get a scribe to sit down and hand copy out even one scroll, one book of the Bible for you. And then you couldn't go anywhere with it. I mean, how are you going to carry all those scrolls? You know, I mean, it, it, people, so they did not, when they studied the word, they were having to study what they had heard and memorized. The downside of our being visual is that we've lost our ability to hear and remember. You go to oral societies and somebody preaches the word and people can go and tell someone else because their brains work to remember what they've heard. 
But they did not have the word the way that we do. We all have it. If you're, you know, you say, well, I don't want people to think I'm a Bible banger. Well, just put your ESV on your, on your phone for Pete's sake. They'll think you're doing something really good like uh, Instagram, you know? <laughs> but study his word and get it into your heart and memorize scriptures as God moves your heart. Learn that thing. Look at it every day. Take it out, set it in your notes, and begin to memorize and get it in and pray it in. That's what it means to meditate on God's word, and that's how God's word gets into us. And then it's there, and it begins to change us from the inside out. I've said this ad nauseum, but I'm going to keep saying it because it goes against the grain of most evangelical teaching. I, not because people are opposed to it, but most evangelicals just don't think of it. We've been taught to do inductive Bible study. And inductive Bible study is great to understand what the text means. But that's, the Bible never tells us, do inductive Bible study. It says, meditate on his word day and night. And I think the reason that so many people who spend so much time studying and doing inductive Bible study and their lives, they say, it's not changing anything. Why? It's because when you do the inductive Bible study, you've prepared the meal. If you then close your Bible and walk away, you never ate the meal, you just prepared. You study in order to meditate on it, which gets it into you and begins to change your whole soul just the way that food nourishes and strengthens our bodies. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And I think last week I mentioned that great line of, of the old 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said, when you, if you stab a Christian, he should bleed Bible. He just meant we, we should have it in us, should be there. And then finally, he says, and this is really what it means to be heavenly minded. He says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What does that mean, to do it in his name? Again, most of us were taught to pray, to end our prayers in Jesus' name, amen. And we think that when we've done that, we've prayed in Jesus' name. That's not what the Bible's talking about. And people will say, you know, I asked in Jesus' name, and Jesus promised if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Where two or three are gathered, we had a hundred, we all asked it in the name of Jesus, and he didn't do it. Why? Because that's not what it meant to do something in the name of someone. No one in the original audience to these letters would have thought that's what it meant. To do something in someone's name meant to do it under their authority and according to their will. Illustration, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, we are Christ's ambassadors, his ambassadors of reconciliation, God making his appeal through us, saying be reconciled to Christ. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador goes out representing his country. He goes in the name of his country, and he can only do 
what his country has sent him to do. If the ambassador to Great Britain feels he's been insulted by King Charles, he can't declare war on Great Britain because he has no authority. In order to act in the name of the United States, he has to act according to the will and the direction of the United States. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. It means we are seeking to pray in accordance with his will. Um, John Piper, John Piper gave a, a beautiful illustration of this back in the old days for those of us who remember walkie-talkies um, back in those days. Piper said of John 12, where Jesus said, you know, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Piper said, Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross and he was entrusting his people as he sent them out to battle. He was giving them a wartime walkie-talkie and saying, now I'm sending you out and whatever you need in this battle, I'll get it to you. He said, the church has turned a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. We're ordering up sandwiches for the family room. That's not what prayer is about. It's not what it's for. And so to ask in the name of Jesus means to stand as his ambassador and say, as I seek today to love in your name and to serve in your name and to be an agent not of this world's war, warfare but of your peace, as I seek to bring that, as I seek to love with some measure of the love with which you've loved me. Use me this day, whether I'm eating or drinking or golfing or fishing or working or lying in a hammock enjoying the beauty of the day. Let me in everything seek to bring glory to your name. That's why he elsewhere says, whether you're eating or drinking, do it all to the glory of God. Same thing. So what about us today? You've heard uh, what a tough time I'm having with this. How about you? Is the peace of Christ increasingly umpiring the various longings and passions and conflicting thoughts that you battle with? Are you sufficiently meditating on God's word, chewing it and getting it into you, that the word of Christ is beginning to fill you? Does it come out in conversation, in song? And are you beginning to realize that if we have been raised with Christ, then Christ is our life? There's been this glorious exchange where, as Paul said so beautifully in Galatians 2, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. That's the call to help each other every day walk that out. 
And that's why we can't be lone rangers. We've got to help each other. Um, what's the name of that country singer? He's got this great song I heard the other day. It's walking each other home. He said, Dirk Bentley. Isn't that a perfect name for a country singer? <laughs> My name's Dirk Bentley. I'm going to sing you a little song. But he said, it's a beautiful song, a haunting song, because he said, we're all just walking each other home. That's what Christians are doing. We're seeking to walk each other home. Would you stand? Take a moment and respond to whatever God's Spirit is saying to you this morning through his word. Thank you, Father, that you've done it, and therefore, Paul just keeps telling us with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord, because we don't do it, you do, and we ask you by your Spirit increasingly to possess us, and let us know the joy of your presence living in us and through us as together we seek to walk each other home. In Jesus' name, amen.